Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Our course platform features many world-renowned wellness teachers, including Marianne Williamson, Michael Beckwith, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, and Adrian Mishler. In addition to courses on yoga, meditation, and personal development, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you are interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Right now, I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, well, this episode is a very different format. I've never interviewed multiple people on the show at the same time, let alone three. But since one of my guests today actually jumped out of an airplane for his show, I would consider it a relatively insignificant risk. Today on the show, we explore the archetypal characteristics of maleness, pride, courage, discipline, and toughness and what one group is doing to bring men together to be vulnerable with each other and cultivate other aspects of their humanity. Sasha Lewis is the co-founder of the men's emotional wellness organization, Everyman. Everyman helps men connect with each other in supportive environments where they let down their guard and can be emotional in ways that are typically not supported. They bring men together in community, through retreats, and online forums to openly share their feelings with each other. Also a member of Everyman and on the show today is author and TV personality Toure. Toure is the host of the podcast Toure Show and the political podcast Democracy-ish. He was a TV host at MSNBC, BET, and a correspondent at CNN. He has published six books, including Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? A Look at What It Means to Be Black Now. And last but certainly not least, I welcome founder of Ever Forward, Ashanti Branch. Based in the San Francisco Bay Area, Ever Forward provides support groups for African-American and Latino males to take their masks of masculinity off and get real with each other about their feelings. Ashanti is just launching the Million Mask Challenge, engaging men in a process of self-reflection by taking off their masks. On this episode, the four of us discuss a variety of topics focusing on toxic masculinity, both broadly and its specific relationship to the African-American community. We discuss mass incarceration, policing, what defund the police actually means, and how the Black Lives Matter movement is different from past civil rights movements. These guys are all doing beautiful, important work facilitating tough conversations, and I'm honored to be in conversation with them. I hope you enjoy the show. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Shanti Branch from Oakland, California. I was um, raised by a single mother and uh, the journey of like fatherlessness uh, adds a lot of flavor to my life. Um, I think the journey of trying to figure out what it means to be a man when there was no man there helping you to figure those things out has always been uh, one of those things I constantly reflect back to in my life. Um, I, you know, went off to, I'm trying to think of how many layers I give you. So I'm going to try to, um, so I went to college to be an engineer, and then as an engineer, um, working in the Bay Area, making really good money, like amazing money, something in my gut said, yeah, this is, you could do this engineering thing, but you're actually supposed to be a teacher. And I was like, teacher? Teachers don't make money. Like, I already did my poor time on earth, you know? It's time for me to be rich, you know? And um, yeah, the engineering thing wasn't cutting it. Like, it was, I could do the work. It wasn't that the work was not that I could do. 
but it wasn't like what I was working so hard for through high school and through college. They said it was like you study hard, get a good job, make a lot of money, live happily ever after. I was searching for happy ever after, and all I was doing was finding happy at happy hour, starting on Friday about 5 p.m., ending around Sunday around 7 p.m., and then I'm like, oh, I'm back to the work thing again. And so I really, my life just kind of grew into figuring out I didn't, I didn't work with all this hard, sacrifice all that fun to just have happiness on the weekends. Like, what's going on? And uh, teaching called me. And so I, I took the answer. I called, I answered the call, even though it was a fight of, you know, financial well-being and success. And um, long story short, I started this program as a first-year teacher called Ever Forward uh, because I saw young men in my class who were really smart, but they were failing my class. I was an algebra teacher. And um, that journey took me to, uh, being a part of a documentary called The Mask You Live In, which is about American masculinity. Um, and currently we, we work all over the world uh, with a campaign called, uh, which is actually launching now, called the Million Mask Movement, collect a million masks from around the world. And really the mask is a representation of like what we let the world see. Like what are the things we let people see about us? And then the stuff that's behind the mask, the stuff we don't talk about, we don't let people see. And I think that uh, that idea of loneliness and that no one understands me, no one gets me, causing a lot of challenges in our world and so our work is focused primarily on the young people we do work with teachers parents some corporate companies and then this global work we do with the hundred thousand masks or actually it was called hundred thousand masks in the beginning it launches <laughs> right now this friday uh million masks so i'm still saying oh the old name but um same work yeah you upped it 10x to a million that's right <laughs> well, we had, added, we added one zero it was all we did is add a zero and now it's a whole whole another world you know yeah. Um, thank you, man. And I watched the documentary last night and uh, it was so moving. Couldn't get to sleep, but because <laughs> my brain was going and going. And I, and, uh, I want to, um, and there's a bunch of things I want to ask you about your process. And there's a scene in the middle of the documentary when you're working with uh, a bunch of kids in a circle. Um, but let's, maybe we'll go around this circle first and then we can come back to that. So uh, I guess we'll bring it, bring it to Brooklyn. I assume that's where you are, Toure. Well, Sasha lives to the west of me, so. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm upstate right now, so I'm not sure where I land, but I probably am still west of you. Um, all right, so I'll jump in. Yeah, I'm Sasha Lewis, and I am a New York native. I'm a Brooklynite currently. Um, I am the co-founder of Everyman, which is sort of the glue that's brought in Ashanti and Torre together um, with me. Um, we're an organization that's about giving men permission to share and feel emotions in ways that we haven't been taught and modeled uh, previous to now. And it's a men's emotional wellness platform, if you will. And it's been a, a, a real honor for me, you know, in some ways as Ashanti's talking about purpose and the work being able to uh, now be a 50 year old man and had a career in digital media and in kind of cultural experiential event space, running a company called Flavor Pill, um, which I sold back in 2018 and being able to now fully invest in purpose-driven businesses and in projects and uh, communities like Everyman. Uh, it definitely doesn't feel like work um, in the way that Shanti was talking about where I'm just trying to, finish the day so I can go have some fun. Um, not to say it's not full of challenges, but um, I'm grateful that I'm doing work that I think has real meaning in, in the world. And uh, I am uh, committed to kind of bringing part of the name is uh, the namesake of every man is that, you know, we're bringing men from all different races and creeds and socioeconomic backgrounds and political um, philosophies. And um, it's been fascinating to, to do this work and, and to see how much similar we are than, than we think. Um, you know, we, there's so much otherness and so much of this idea of, of uh, especially men, men in the masculine sort of culture, right, of like one-upping each other, trying to outduel each other, trying to be more successful or have a, a, a more attractive wife or a house or whatever it is that we can sort of, you know, measure, measure up against each other. And uh, part of the work that we've been able to, uh, I think, sort of allow for us to do is that we recognize that we're, we're all humans, right? And we're all just struggling. And, you know, these masks that Ashanti talks about, like we all have them. 
and sort of being able to, to unarmor ourselves and to, to be more authentically who we are gives us permission to actually you know, be a full spectrum human, right? Be someone who has emotional intelligence and intellectual intelligence and physical attributes um, and whatever sort of uh, formula that that comes up with for, for each of us. Um, so yeah, it's an honor to, to be a part of, the, of every man and, um, and to be doing the work out in the world that's so necessary right now. And uh, I'm excited, excited for the rest of our conversation. And uh, I think we'll probably do a little bit of our, our work um, through, through this as well. So we can kind of show people what this is all about and uh, hopefully model some vulnerability and some authenticity that probably is a, is a welcome uh, um, sort of moment for, for people to hear and see from men. Um, and obviously also be talking about things like, like race, right? This is a big thing for men. Uh, it's an uncomfortable space for, for me, I know, and uh, I'm, I'm excited that we're, and I'm glad that we're open to, to having that conversation together. Yeah, thanks, man. And I might also add that you celebrated Father's Day for the last time as a fatherless human being, or as a, a progeny-less human being. You're about to be a dad, um, which I, I, I suppose... Uh, brings this work into even greater importance and relief. Um, and, you know, you should feel free as a newbie for me, because I've never been to a meeting. Um, you know, you can, uh, I'm happy to be kind of like a, a pledge or a, you know, <laughs> guinea pig in this process. So if you, if you want to take me through some of the kind of rites and rituals of the, of the process here, I'd be, I'd be really interested in that. Yeah. I mean, one thing is that they don't, um, demarcate a hierarchy of like you're new so you're lower um you know the first time i started coming into this group and doing the work it was you know everybody's equal you know and that's really important i think that the best practices were modeled by a certain group of men but it wasn't like well you know you have to go through six a certain number of meetings before you get to be a certain level or there's a different word for the new people. Um, and, you know, I mean, the first exercise that uh, we did was really powerful and equalizing in terms of 50 men sitting around in a singular circle. So, right, like we're not in rows, right? Everybody's equal, nobody can hide. And everybody go around the room and say how you're feeling in your physical body and your emotional body in about 30 seconds and the equalizing nature of that was really powerful because there were definitely people who i was like he looks nothing like me i don't trust him i don't know him oh my god he said the same things as me like physically and emotionally and like oh we do share a lot and if you peel back the mask we are connected or we could be connected um you know, so I mean, we can get into some of that today, which is really powerful and interesting. Um, you know, I'm Tore, I, I live in Brooklyn. Um, I had two kids and a wife. I had worked in media for a long time. I've written six books. I've done a bunch of podcasts and doing two podcasts now. Um, I've hosted a bunch of television shows at MSNBC, MTV, Hughes, other places. Um, you know, I, I work in media and producing media around culture, politics, blackness, all sorts of things. Um, so if you want to start in terms of understanding like the everyman way, we could start by doing a check-in and you start to see like how it goes. And part of the exercise too is sharing your feelings with with other men because we typically will share our feelings if we do with women right because that is safe but sharing your feelings with other men i feel like you know even when, with your friends you put on a mask where you're like yeah i'm cool like i handle i can handle everything like nothing's bothering me like i'm good like women will get with their friends and they'll talk about their problems they'll talk about their bodies what's going on how they're, we're like yeah i'm strong i can handle anything but like you know if we were in a meeting you know you know, and maybe we could go around and model it and then you could go last. Um, you know, I might say, you know, I feel 
very light and relaxed. I feel a little, little heaviness in my stomach because I just ate a bunch of fried chicken for lunch. Um, I feel a little warm because it's warm here in my house and in Brooklyn it's getting hotter. Um, I feel like emotionally light and welcome because I'm with two guys I know really well who are very emotionally open. So I feel comfortable being vulnerable and, you know, I feel happy to be doing this because what I'm really supposed to be doing is my taxes. So I'd rather be doing this than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's sort of where I am. Um, Sasha, where are you? Yeah, I'll check in. So um, I'm feeling tingling in my toes. My throat is scratchy. <clears throat> my nose is dry. Um, my belly is swirling. Uh, emotionally, I'm feeling calm and anxious. I'm feeling um, fear just around saying the right thing and representing uh, this conversation in the right way. Noticing that, and I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot of gratitude, just for where I am in my life, the future baby and the family coming, and um, <clears throat> for being healthy and you know having a smile on my face every day, even through all this challenging times. And then, uh, yeah, I'm here and I'm in. Mm, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm feeling like some tightness in my back. Um, feeling some rumbling in my stomach. I didn't have my bulletproof coffee this morning. So uh, I'm, I think when my body's like, where's the, where's the, where's the fuel? We need some fuel. So I'm dragging on reserves. Um, I mean, I have a lot of reserves to drag from, but still I can feel that presence. Um, I think um, I'm feeling a little like a head coming on, like I'm fucking some head stuff going on. Um, I think emotionally I'm feeling like just kind of excited about this launch this week, but also like tense and stressed about all the things that have to go into it. Like this is, we've had a couple of launches before and just like knowing that, I mean, all the things I've committed to doing that I got to keep, you know, my commitments. And then that's not including the million mask movement that's launching. So I just feel a lot of pressure and anxiousness, um, anxiety to like, okay, okay. What's next? I'm trying not. I'm trying to be as much present as I can with these men here, and also my brain is like keeps. Oh my goodness! What are the next five things I got to do? Is it on, is it on the to do list, <laughs> or if am I going to forget it? Should I write a note to myself? So I'm just having some stirrings in my mind around getting stuff done. So um, I'm here and I'm in. All right, Jeff, your turn. It's been modeled. Body and emotion, how are you feeling? Yeah, <clears throat> I'm feeling a little nervous. Um, and I suppose just a little bit, you know, like shaky a little bit with that nervousness. Um, I think, uh, you know, partially that's due to uh, just not getting a lot of sleep these days. Um, and so my energy has maybe been like a little serrated, jagged, um, and not even. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I feel a lot of pressure right now um, to really like do good work. Um, I've been writing a tremendous amount and like searching for words uh, as kind of vessels for emotions and feelings um, in the hopes of being able to, you know, stimulate conversations by being able to give feelings words. Um, and then <laughs> feeling a bit torn because I'm so preoccupied with the work that Am I undercutting really kind of what like Ashanti was maybe talking about at the beginning? Am I undercutting like the true or undermining like 
a certain kind of authenticity of just being there for my children, being there for being like a strong and present husband. Am I so just preoccupied out here that I'm not there? And, um, and I guess the last thing is like, just been really trying to, I mean, I'm certainly far from alone in this regard, but um, doing a lot of like moral inventory and a lot of like trying to unpack my identity a little bit um and uh yeah but you know i'm feeling blessed feeling also just so grateful for everything that's been given to me so i'm here i'm mm. in mm. i picked up on that last bit the i'm here i'm in thing. Yeah. <laughs> well after that we the rest of the group goes aho so you get a nice all right resonant response to your call so you feel even more connected beautiful yeah you know the mask feels like such a metaphor you know for the work that's being done and um you know i feel like maybe that'd be an interesting just thing to unpack for people that kind of haven't been connected to that metaphor and um, Ashanti, I mean, you know, as I referred to specifically before, it's like that work that you're doing with, I suppose, mostly kids, you know, young adults. Um, but, you know, what I saw in the documentary um, where, you know, you're really unpacking that metaphor of the mask, but, but really doing it very directly with even like a piece of paper with a mask on it. I wonder if you could kind of describe that exercise and that work um, to kind of help maybe just unpack that metaphor a bit. Yeah, thank you. So um, when they invited us to be a part of this documentary, uh, they wanted to film um, me and the work Ever Forward. And I said, well, our best club, a club is doing the best is over here at this other school, Arise High School. And they were like, well, where are you at? I said, well, I'm at Fremont High School, which is actually, I was a dean and it was my alma mater. And I said, well, this club's not going so well. We're, we're still in our building stages, you know, like those first couple of weeks or months together because young men weren't checking in. They weren't, they weren't actually um, opening up to like the real stuff that was going on with them. And because I was a dean, I knew more about them than they were telling each other. But all I could do in a circle is just to, hold their hold whatever they told me in my office confidential but in front of each other they were like i'm good i'm good i'm fine i'm cool and i think that what i knew that i had to try and do is get them to talk about it without talking about it because they would they refuse to talk about it. especially imagine we got cameras now right so hmm. the activity was like well what well, how about i have them just write it and the idea of the mask was well how about we just use the mask as a metaphor for what i'm letting people see so the front of the mask is Here's what I'm letting people see about me, right? And if I think about what's on the back of the mask, there are things that I'm not letting people see, things that I don't talk about, I don't let people see. And so that was when we originally did it with the pieces of paper and we threw them at each other. So the campaign from that has evolved, right? So um, I, I have masks all over my office. We have we over 44,000 masks from 16 countries. So the campaign is growing. So now that this we're moving to this million mask movement, which is launching this Friday, I'm, I'm gonna just show you a mask. Hopefully, hopefully your screen will see it, but I'm gonna do my best to make it in the right angle. So, this is a mask. This is a you see, this is a 13 year old male from Jacksonville, and then you see the front. Can you read a couple of words from the front of the mask? The left side. My eyesight's not that good. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you. So it says, <laughs> oh, good. "No, thank you." So it says, "Happy, outgoing." Funny, athletic, loving, smart, talented. Impressed. Some of you just do three words, but this person felt really passionate. And then if you look at the back, it says sad, PTSD, scared. Mm. Like this is a depressed. This is a 13 year old, right? And so what we see is whether people are 13 or they're 53, right? Here's a 50, 53 year old man, right? From Oakland. Right. And so on the front, it says, everything's okay. Mr. Normal, funny, clever, upbeat, 
And then the back says stress, concern, awkward, uncomfortable, issues, tied in knots. And so even though they have more sophisticated language if you're 53 than you're 13, it's similar stuff, same stuff we were dealing with. And who do we talk about it? We, we're not, we, we, in our campaign, we're not saying you should not have a mask. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, people, do you have a place that you can go, like every man, like other men's circles around the world, but can you can go and take it off so you're not walking around every day pretending that everything is fine, even though it's not. And if it, were, if it serves you to pretend everything is fine, great. But what we see as our jails are full of men, 94% of people in jail are men, we see that it's not working. <laughs> it's, it's not working in all the ways that we hope it will work. It, it usually ends up coming back. The domestic violence and the situation, are mo- you think about all these factors of where men are, uh, are hurting. And you can see it in the, in the actions and the results. And so that's some of our work. And so what we've been doing is um, asking people, inviting people to make a mask. And they draw a picture in six words. And they submit it. They can submit it on our website. They can mail it into us. Um, this next movement is going to ask people to just take a picture of themselves with a mask, whether there's one of these, these masks or whether they're using a bandana as a mask, whatever mask that they're wearing, like physically now. Because now we're physically seeing masks all the time. Right? And before we were seeing them, we just didn't know we were seeing them. You know, I wonder what you feel the relationship between mass incarceration and the criminal justice system and these kind of typical male archetype behaviors, like what is your observation on the relationship between those things, like especially in the African-American community? um, You know, do you feel like young men are having to adopt certain kinds of behaviors um, to, you know, be tough? Or, I mean, I guess that's an obvious question, but, um, or observation, but I wonder what you see, like how you think those things inform each other. Well, I think the system is broken first. So I think it's easy to get a, become a victim of the system when the system is broken. So when you think about um, the way incarceration happens, and in I'm in Oakland, so I've seen a lot of people arrested. I've seen a lot of people come back from, from jail. And I think that, um, I think, the challenge is it's sometimes harder for people to come back from jail than it is when they go, right? When you come back, they're like, here's 20 bucks, go get them. <laughs> Hope, let me drop you back off in the community you just got arrested from, and now you're going to figure out how to make So I think the system has a lot of broken parts of it. Yeah. You can't get a job, right? You know, good That's luck. That's right. And therefore, the challenges become now, I'm like, but if I, let's say I never went. I, I never went to jail. And I think that the challenge is that it's still, when I walk into a store, when I walk into a business, now I don't just walk in as this black man with, who's a big six foot one, 300 pound black man who already has to be modifying my presence so I don't make people feel uncomfortable. Now I'm wearing a mask on top of that. So imagine now all the stress I got to think. I mean, I, I can't just walk into a store thinking about what I'm buying. I'm like, okay, who's looking at me? Who's like, who, who's like worried about me? And I think that those stresses constantly, if you're, if, if, you know, when we talk about how, if you're in the woods and a bear started chasing you, right, you run. That's just your automatic pressure, right? The stress hormone. What if you're always feeling like something's chasing you? What if every time you see flashing lights in your rearview mirror, down the street, wherever you live, you are constantly feeling like you're being chased by a bear, like, like your life is in danger? I don't, people have done research on, people, doctors, people who are way smarter than me have done research on how that causes stress in the body and how that stress in the body causes health disparities. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said about that. I mean, Absolutely. one of the reasons why people commit crime, um, habitual crime, most of us commit a crime every day, be it some sort of misdemeanor or whatever, but like, you know, more serious crimes. Um, if your network of people is, uh, I read a study that talked about like, if your network of people is about 75% habitual crime committers or more, 
you are more likely to become a person who's going to commit crime habitually, you know. Um, and what we do when we send folks to prison because the inner city, the black neighborhoods are, black and brown neighborhoods are over-policed, um, what you do is your bonds with people who don't commit crime all the time are broken. Like, temporally, you must spend time around people who commit crimes, who've been caught committing crimes. You cannot see the other people. Um, we have laws where you cannot live in public housing if you've been convicted of a felony. So that separates you from your family. It becomes harder to get a job. So in, in the, war, the way the war on drugs and mass incarceration works, we are pushing especially young black men away from uh, being in familial and professional structures that would lead them to not be incentivized to commit crime. Uh, you know, and as long as you have things like the box where you have to check a box on your, on your job application, have you been convicted of a felony? Yes, I have. Until we get rid of something like that, then once you start to get into that system, it becomes very hard to get out of it. Um, you know, this, this is separate and apart from the overprevalence of guns in our society, um, you know, which a lot of people don't want to talk about as part of the problem. If we had, you know, guns become uh, contagious, if one crew in the neighborhood has a gun or two, then your crew needs to get guns to be able to protect and be on the same level as them. So now we're in a sort of arms race, right, which doesn't stop um and now you're competing with the cops on firepower and so until we can start to address these sort of things i mean the future that would be positive for me involves not only less policing but less illegality so like things like making yeah. drugs legal right putting far fewer people in prison um, making it easier if you do go to prison to return from that because we don't talk about how policing and prison are in and of themselves criminogenic. They create criminals and criminality. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to do to help people, which is not just their own pathology, but the structures we're putting around it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the culture of criminality, I think the points that you bring up are, are really poignant and prescient and interesting. I mean, and I'm curious about, you know, how you guys feel about um, sort of defund the police. Obviously, I mean, what you're touched on was that what the policy actually or what the slogan actually represents are a lot of the things that you just talked about or enumerated, which is, you know, taking police, not only decriminalizing certain kinds of activities, but taking police out of the militarization of like domestic disputes and other forms of things where they really have no training and they really just shouldn't be involved in, you know, these are mental health issues or other kinds of things. I mean, Sorry. one thing you have to think about is the police are not incentivized to create public safety. They are incentivized to make arrests and to claw money from the public. There's no reason why the police need to be involved in mm. uh, parking. Why, <laughs> why, why is that even part of their responsibility? Uh, because that helps claw money from the people for the city and the state. Um, and the mo one movement we've seen over the last 20 years is that People, consistently, people want less taxes, but they want the same amount of public services. So how does the city make up the difference? Um, by clawing money from the citizens, by, by charging them with small offenses. But more than that, police officers are incentivized to make arrests. Every time an officer makes an arrest or a citation, they must go to court to speak on that. Every time they set foot in court, they are getting overtime pay. So they are being literally paid a bonus for every arrest and citation they make, even if they get to court and it gets knocked off. And in a lot of areas, you have things like if you set foot in court, you get the first three hours are guaranteed or the first four hours, the first eight hours are guaranteed overtime. 
uh, no matter how much actual time you spend there. Um, also, there's things like quotas in terms of you can't say, you know, Sasha, you have to make 20 arrests a month. But if Sasha is bringing in 15 collars a month, um, you know, the, the, the commanding officer is looking at Ashanti like, you got to be in the ballpark or you're not doing your job. Why is he getting so many more than you? But also when you want to move up, they look at how many arrests have you made? You can't say, I didn't see anything because I was on my post being visible and nobody did anything. No, you were not doing your job if you're not making collars. So just to begin with, you know, and, and a recent New York Times study, only 4% of what they're doing uh, in, with their time is actually dealing with violent crime. So, you know, the notion that we need armed warrior mentality, no uh, responsibility, no transparency people who lie all the time, traveling through our cities, looking to make arrests, that is insane. And, and, permission to lie. and I can outline more clearly a vision of what a post-police world looks like. But for the people who say a world without police would be chaos, I would move that, at least for me and Ashanti, the current world is chaos. And the notion that I should walk around my community as a taxpaying uh, parent and be afraid every time I see a cop, when many cops say, hey, Torre, what's up? Nice to see you. Uh, but I'm still afraid when I see them. That's insane. And that should not exist. And, and, and I think, and it, thank you, Torrey, for that. I appreciate that. One of the things I experienced and I've seen here in San Francisco, a man with a mental health issue who had a knife. He, he was on the sidewalk and he got shot by more than 10 officers, like with a knife. Just a couple of months, like a couple of weeks ago in, in Walmart, in Walmart. A man having a mental health issue, obviously, two officers. This man gets shot inside Walmart. Like the idea that officers who have supposedly have been trained, who have such a little tolerance for stress, there needs to be better training, there needs to be better whatever. But also, why are we sending a person with a, with a, with a gun to help a person with a mental disability? We're, we're criminalizing mental disabilities. So we criminalize drugs, right? Drug addiction, right? So I think that if we don't begin to, like, when people hear defund, they think you're talking about take all their money away. It's like, well, we need to put money in the right places. When somebody has a flat tire on the side of the road, why are we sending a police officer to engage a person who's already in, in fear? In fear. When I saw the Orlando Castillo murder, I was in Starbucks. I literally didn't think what I, I thought it was a car when it's car stops and people yell and they, I thought it was that. And when I saw what I saw, literally I couldn't breathe. And immediately, right after I watched this, two police officers walked in Starbucks. Do you know, I could not, I, I was like, I need to run. I hadn't done anything. I'm sitting in Starbucks trying to do work, but I can't breathe. I don't even like, I'm thinking if I leave quickly, they're going to like think I'm doing something. I was like, I have all the thoughts in my mind, like I'm about to die. And I think that what happens is we send police in all the time and they have no skills. They have no, they don't work. They don't live in the communities they work in. Most of them, Oakland, we have so many white police officers. Now I don't have more white police officers, but they don't live in Oakland. They live in Pleasanton, Dublin, Concord. They, they live out of here. So they, they're not connected to this community. So even when they walk around this community, they're already watching you like you're a suspect. So they're not, even though they're saying hi, or if they even do that. I saw two police on a, on a horses yesterday in the Fruitvale district. This is the Latino community in Oakland. They were on two horses. I, they literally startled me. I was like, what, what is the sound I'm hearing coming up behind me? Two horses. I, I can't, I, I don't have any more words for that. But just the fact that what's happening is this idea that we have a community that we're supposed to have people that are there to protect and serve. And even when people are going through trauma, they don't want to call them because they're afraid of how they're going to escalate things and make it even worse. No, exactly. The first time somebody talked to me about police abolition, I was like, um, well, wh what would you do in a world without police? And they said to me, think about how many times the police show up and make the situation worse. And like, that is generally yeah. my expectation, especially if it's an ongoing situation, they're going to make the situation worse. Because Partly what Ashanti is referring to is the notion of having uh, specialists come out who have 
uh, lots of different training and thoughts on many different ways to de-escalate and handle a situation. Um, the police arrive and the questions really come down to who do I arrest, who do I shoot? Which is certainly not helpful in a mental health situation, in a domestic violence situation, in a homeless situation, um, to say nothing of the situations where cops are being aggressive um, to people who have done nothing wrong and are not threatening anything, anybody, but generally folks think, you know, authority must have some reason why it's behaving this way when quite often, as black people we know, no, quite often, I mean, how many times in the last three weeks have we seen officers be uh, aggressive and violent and offensive toward peaceful protesters? Many times. Hey, Ashanti and Tori, just to kind of drop into a little bit of the everyman work, like, can we go a layer deeper? And like, Ashanti, when you're talking about <clears throat> what's happening in, in Oakland and what you're feeling, like, <clears throat> I'll say for myself, I feel, I feel fear, I feel shame, <clears throat> I feel anger, you know, and I feel, I feel love for you. You know, I feel like I want to support you and love you, and I'm not sure how to do that. Um, so yeah, what is that? Can you kind of step back into that space and kind of move into the emotional space of where, where you're coming from there? Because you're both highly intelligent and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're so knowledgeable in this space. And I, I also think it's really helpful, I'll just say it for me, as a white man, to witness that from you too, right? To see like, where's that, what's that emotion? What's behind all of that, that, that passion and that, that knowledge and wisdom of what the situation is and what needs to change. Well, I think the first thing for me is um, fear. I mean, I have a brother who has schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. My brother don't even answer my questions directly. So I'm always afraid of him walking around Oakland. He don't, he's not, my brother doesn't, doesn't want to hurt nobody, but he, he has challenges. Like he, he irritates me and I love him. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I, I'm worried about him encountering a police officer who asks him a question and my brother never answers a direct question. So like police who get irritated, we don't answer their questions. Well, he's not going to answer your question. You don't answer a mom's questions to him directly. He always goes to the, to the East and then back and he comes back and then you ask it again. Like that, if police don't know how to navigate people who are just struggling, I, I feel fear. I feel every day, my brother, my brother will call me if, if I like promise him I'm gonna take you to get a burrito. He will call me 18 times to make sure I don't forget. Now I haven't forgotten, but he thinks I'm gonna yeah. forget. So his paranoia is that he needs to keep calling me. I'm like, dude, I'm at work. You can't keep calling me. But if, what happens if I don't an answer his call? He gets more worried. He calls me even more. So I have to, I have to keep answering the call. So I'm stressed about him out there in the world dealing with these officers. And so I, 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 I constantly think about it. Like you can't, there's certain things you can't turn off. Like if you have, if you're a parent and you have kids, like you, they go out to a date or a movie, you may be thinking about them from the time they leave to the time they get back. You, sometimes there's things you can't turn off. And so I think that what I feel is fear. I feel, I feel fear for him. I feel fear for myself. I feel fear for myself because I think I'm a little smart. I, so when I get pulled over, when I was 18, I would always talk back to police. I, I talked back more to police when I was 18 than I do now because back then they, I, they weren't regularly just shooting us in the middle of the street. Like now I feel like, um, okay, just give me the ticket. I don't hear whatever you want to write the ticket for, write it. I have nothing to say. Cause I feel like I'm not going to make it home. They, they like, were, you just, you just were less aware of it because it was not the era of the ubiquitous <laughs> cameras. But the, the murder rate was not any less. I mean, like, there you, go. you know, I definitely feel an anger because if we had had, we had not had video of Rodney King getting his ass beat. And he said, yeah, 15 cops just sat there and beat my ass for half an hour. Would you have believed him? I would have believed him, but most, most white people would have been like, yeah, right. What did you do? Um, you know, I feel fear, but the fear has been constant throughout my life. Um, I feel exasperated and unapologetic about the anger that I feel now. And I'm no longer thinking about what is politically viable in terms of the solution. I'm thinking about this is what's right. 
and I no longer care about like what can we get done, which is a few moderate reforms, but like what do we actually need, which is a complete fundamental change in the approach to public safety. And you know, I think the uh, a previous younger me would have said, well, you know, that's not politically viable. Now I'm like, just punch through the wall or just, you know, just yell about this is what needs to happen. I don't really care. I see a lot of people, when you talk about the stuff on Twitter, they say, oh, this is activating people who are fence sitters to go for Trump. And I'm like, you know, I'm not modulating my demand to stop killing us, to make it uh, more palatable to suburban uh, Midwestern white women who are like, you know, oh, you know, what did George Floyd really do wrong? Like, really? Like, you know, no, I, you know, I'm not doing that anymore, especially now when I am seeing this movement where more white people are coming into the movement and talking about it and thinking about it and taking this, these messages more seriously than I've ever seen. So I start to wonder if there's a chance that this time will be different or we have pushed the rock up the hill to a new place. So there are, there are reasons to be hopeful um, that real change, we are on the precipice of real change, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So there's a lot of rage that needs to be accessed and a lot of uh, rejection of shame and rejection of the white gaze that you need to have to be able to push forward and demand what you believe really needs to happen. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting um, because it, it sounds like you are willing just to kind of eschew political pragmatism for the right thing on some level because yeah, with that, for example, with defund the police, I think that's a good example. And, and you're a wordsmith. Um, and, you know, I think you can probably appreciate that kind of electoral politics has a long history of kind of law and order, you know, prevailing. And, you know, that notion of defund the police, if you don't properly unpack it, and it, you just become sort of a vector for that message, that slogan on social media, like you say, you know, white suburban voters will be kind of like, well, I don't know, what we, can we do without well, I mean, police people, or whatever? People are quite clear what is meant when they say defund Planned Parenthood, <laughs> when they say defund schools. The, those things are clear. Only when we say defund the police are they like, oh, my brain froze. I don't understand what that means. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like, the demand is stop killing us. So I'm no longer talking about well, can you kill us a little less? You know, I mean, I'm even saying, why are we asking politely? Like, you know, people want to go to like, why are people looting and rioting? Um, and, you know, we're like, no, no, we're peaceful protesters. Why should we be peaceful protesters? Why should we not be rowdy? Why should we not be aggressive? Because our demand is stop killing us. Why do we have to be polite in asking for that? I mean, somebody pointed out that the whole peaceful protester paradigm is respectability politics. If we ask nicely, we'll get respect from the powers that be. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily. Perhaps we need to be louder and more aggressive about it. One thing I, um, I've been thinking about in, in terms of kind of maleness and male leaders um, is that, you know, it feels like this movement right now is slightly different from historic movements insofar that, um, you know, the, the 60s civil rights movement was so at least historically, it was very dominated by these incredibly charismatic men who were able to deliver kind of like soaring oratory and, you know, inspire and move tons of people. And that this movement now, uh, at least 
you know, Black Lives Matter was, you know, founded by, you know, three women who I, I have rarely seen on television. Um, it seems, I don't know if it seems, it feels more decentralized. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, but do you feel that this movement has, I guess, maybe a more feminine quality to it, a more all-encompassing cooperative nature to it? Or is that just kind of like over-intellectualizing it? <laughs> I mean, I think overall that's kind of fair. It is definitely more, I mean, you know, it also functions in the era of Occupy and in the millennial uh, era of let's be they the media says leader less, which is what you're talking about. They say leader full. Um, they want to have a nationalized movement that can function in the way it needs to in different places. What they can do in Los Angeles is not what they can do in Birmingham. And they want to be supportive for the folks in Birmingham or Baltimore, but not necessarily telling them what to do. They don't want to have a situation where, you know, the leaders of the 60s were killed um, and the movement died out. You know, they don't, you know, they were targeted and thus disempowered. Um, you know, if you have, you know, 10,000 leaders, you can't easily just sort of suck the power out of us by lying about or shooting one person. Um, there's... There's also, I think, a more complex community now, a broader community now that would be harder to have a couple of charismatic uh, savior type epic figures um, who could sort of speak to what the entire nation needs and, and, and combine what we in New York need with what, you know, people in the Bay need with what deep there's, you know, I think what we need is a little more decentralized, but, um, you know, uh, Patrice and Alicia and Opal and them have done some media. I've had Patrice on my show. Um, you know, she's, she, she is powerful and media savvy in her own way. Deray McKesson has gotten the uh, lion's share of the media of BLM folks um, for whatever reason. And, you know, I mean, also in, in this media time, they have been very effective at using social media, right? DeRay, um, Brittany Packnett, and some of them have used uh, Twitter and Instagram in very powerful ways where, you know, you, Jeff, may be like, well, I don't see them on TV. Well, what would that mean? Like being on Rachel Maddow's show? I mean, like, and they may have been on there, but you wouldn't have seen it. Television is more decentralized, but they are extremely loud on Twitter and Instagram, you know, uh, to where, you know, if you're following them, you are hearing their voice all the time. Yeah, I, w I wonder if, um, you know, Sasha, if this is, you know, kind of to every man. Um, and, you know, to I, I started reading some of your book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, um, or I'm not sure if I got the title right, but uh, th that, and I wonder if there is a, if that, if some of, you know, what you um, talk about there can be applied to manhood or, or maleness of like, is there a sort of post maleness almost um, where we can be sort of rooted um, and, you know, in, in some of the, um, I suppose, kind of archetypal traits of, of manhood, but not defined by them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely very every man. I mean, what I try to talk about in Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness is a notion of blackness as infinite and that it can be performed or embodied in any way imaginable and all performances or embodiments of blackness are of equal value um and yeah i think you know part of what every man does so well is it breaks down what we have been taught manhood means and tries to push us in a different way um 
the 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 weekend event that I went to, the prompt at dinner before we even started the actual programming was who taught you how to be a man, right? And so we're having dinner conversation talking about, you know, for me, my father and some of the older guys in school who I was very inspired by, which sort of got sort of like the operating system out. Like it is, you know, it's typically buried and it's like, now I'm like thinking very consciously about like the manhood that the specific people who taught me how to be a man um, were, were teaching me. And then you go into these exercises, which are meant to get you to be aware of your emotional body and able to talk about it with other men and able to hear other men talk about theirs, um, which is completely revolutionary. And part of what they did too was that I was always taught, you know, by society, by men, that the emotional body or the emotional life is for women to talk about and think about. And what these guys were, were saying was there is an emotional body in all of us and there is a masculine way of talking about and thinking about your own. We don't have to do it the way that women do, but ignoring our emotional body is insane. Tori, thanks for that. And to build on the way we think about it with every man is we talk about a full spectrum human, right? And for so long, the ideal man was carving out their emotions and keeping that hidden from everyday connection with people, right? And that has led us down this path to so much of the troubles we have as a society, right? The loneliness epidemic, you know, addiction to porn, addiction to um, drugs, video games, mass shootings, all these things, you know, at their core is that men are not in a place where they can in a healthy way, express their emotions. You know, just what we did before when we modeled this a little bit, it's kind of, it seems pretty simple. It's probably, you know, fourth grade sort of level of emotional communication. But to Tori's point, for most men, it's revolutionary to like just say like, hey man, I feel scared, you know? And then to be able to have Ashanti say, I feel fear too. And then all of a sudden it de-escalates, you know, all of this, sensation that we have in our body that we're constantly in fight or flight mode because that's what we're taught as men right is to either win or to retreat you know it's one or the other and don't retreat because we know what that will make you right it'll it'll categorize you as soft or other words that i'm not going to use on this show because i want to be appropriate and i think you know the way in which me too really outed men and said hey this isn't going to work anymore right that watershed moment, especially with Harvey Weinstein, when it was like, this is broken, you know? There's no longer an acceptable way for this to move forward. We have to change this paradigm of what it means to be a man in our society. And that's, you know, an incredible time for all of us to sort of reflect back at. And the reality was, it was like, for most men, it's still like, okay, well, what do I do? You know, do I go read some book? You know, do I take a class? Do I, you know, how do I do this? How do I train myself? How do I develop that muscle? And that's a place because it hasn't been modeled for us. And for most of for most men, it hasn't been modeled from our fathers or our teachers or our coaches. Um, you know, it was the opposite was modeled, right? We don't see it in our media. We don't see it in any of our day-to-day -day lives. So now we're really recalibrating what it means to be a man. And it's this amazing opportunity, you know, the fact that here we are, the four of us, in our own way, you know, moving into this space and being vulnerable and being willing to you know, show our, our, our softer side, if you will, right? And actually recognizing that I, for me, you know, speaking from my own experience, I actually feel better about who I am. I feel like I can be more honest. I can be, I can have more empathy. I can actually go out and be the, the person I'm supposed to be. I can have that purposeful work and life that I want because I don't have to hide, you know, to, to Ashanti's work. I don't have to hide behind all these masks of like being Mr. Cool or having my shit together or, you know, always knowing what's up and always having the right answer. I can actually feel okay and be supported by other men to say, Hey, you know, I'm struggling right now. I don't have the, all the answers, especially in this world, in this moment, right? The work we see with the groups that we do, we have ongoing groups. Tori's talked a lot about our retreats, but we also have these ongoing groups that are support and there are ways to get, you know, feedback and be challenged to sort of say, hey, how do I up-level who I am? How do I 
express my emotions and my relationships in a healthy way. Um, and it's really training, right? It's practice and training so that when we go out in the real world, we can be more authentic to ourselves. We can be more authentic to our families and our loved ones and into our community. And so it's essential. And I think a lot of what we're talking about with race and politics and all these things, if you go deeper to these deeper levels, it's a lot of it is because of the way in which we've men have perceived from power and from greed, right? Is that's, that's the mark of success, right? And it's broken. And, and here we are, we're facing it, right? We're facing it full on with the way our systems are broken, the way we treat each other based on um, the different colors of our skin. And uh, this, you know, we feel like this is part of the work for to re- us to restore our humanity and to really understand that we are far more similar than we are different. So I just, I just want to speak to that, um, that point around, um, and I think the what we see in the work with not only just um, there's this idea of masculinity of men, but also with our boys is that it starts at a very young age, such at a very young age where boys pick up whether what it means to be a real man and what it means not. I think one of the lines in the documentary, Dr. Judy Shu says, if you go to any playground in America, or maybe it was um, Jim Kim, uh, um, Dr. Kimmel from New York, he said, if you go to any playground in America, you can start a fight by asking one question. Who's a sissy around here? And the boys will have to have a decision because they know at early ages what that means and what you have to do to be to fit in that category. And how do we cause that behavior to be showing up? And how do we, what, what do we do? Where we where do we get where do we get our messages of who taught us to be a man? What if a if you're a 15 year old and you learn from a 17 year old, and that 17 year old learned from another when he was 15, learned from another like so you got teenagers teaching other young people about what it means to be a man because sometimes there's a there's no men there. That's how it was for me. My my father wasn't in my home, even though I had a grandfather around. He was a pastor of my church. So anything I asked him about when I'm getting bullied, you know, he would say stuff that didn't really, that I didn't want to hear. <laughs> you know, he, he told me some really good things that he, that he believed, but for me, it was like, I just want, I needed to stop. And the forgiving them part is not working because the lunch money gets taken every day. And so I, I think I learned from people around me in my, in my neighborhood, here's how you make it stop. Here's what you're going to have to do. It's going to be hard to do. Here's what you're going to have to do. And unfortunately, it required violence. The other option was to go tell the teacher. <laughs> and in my community, hmm, you know, the, the, that was the result of that. Although as I look at it back, I'm like, yeah, you could tell. But you, you know, there's consequences for any action. It's consequences for me to hit this person. It's consequences for me to go tell the teacher. It's consequences for me to ignore it. And when you're eight and you're 10 years old and you're trying to figure it out, you know, some you may not have the best uh, thought process in terms of the risk of the results or, or the long-term effects of what you're going to do. Um, but I think that those behaviors and how what men have thought of their role as in the world, some men are hurt by the fact that they are no longer expected to be, have all the power and have all the money and be the breadwinner. The men have their feelings hurt when their spouse makes more money than them. I don't, I don't understand that thinking, but okay. But for some, that's a problem. Like they, they'll be feeling insulted. They feel like they're, they're less than, and I think that's problematic in communities and families. So I think the definition of roles are, are different now. I mean, women don't need us to have a child anymore. No, they, they can go have their own child and raise their child by themselves. And they, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the, the way the world works is different now. So we have to adjust with that. The way the world works now and i think that um some men are able to handle that and some are struggling to try and keep it the way it was and i think the idea is that we're creating a new language right we're creating a new paradigm of what it means to be a man and so that to your point shanti around being a young boy uh, you know we hear again and again guys that come to our retreats and guys that are in our groups and do this work that one of their most powerful things that they get from the work is that they're able to then go teach this to their boys. They're able to say, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not have all the answers, you know, and like that lineage, right. And retraining us in our society 
to all, all of the toxic stuff that we learned as men, right? And the macho-ness of what it means to be a man in our society is getting broken down. And now this is, we're just at the tip of the iceberg here because we're in a bubble, right? You go out into other places in this country and, and uh, you know, other communities. And this is, we see it when, when we do our work with every man, there's times when we've gotten press on sort of major news channels like Yahoo um, and um, other sort of more wide reaching press outlets. And we get hate comments left, right, and center. You know, you guys are what's all wrong about being a man. This is why um, we're losing to China. You know, these types of conversations and comments are coming at us. So there's a, <laughs> this is real, right? And part of the reason that we call this every man is because we don't want this just to t be talking to progressive, liberal educated people, right? We wanna be able to use this as a language to bridge the gap between the red and the blue and you know everything else, right? I mean, we have to come together. And as men, particularly, we have to be part of the, the solution, right? We have to figure out ways where we can harmonize and have empathy and compassion for each other and settle our disputes um, you know, through, com through compassion and through wisdom instead of violence and hatred. And that's oversimplifying it, but I think you know, part of what we're doing here is we're giving guys permission to slow down, to feel their feelings, and to share those feelings with each other, and then see each other more as equals. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you would like to learn more about the work Sasha is doing with Everyman, please go to everyman.com. That's E-V-R-Y-M-A-N.com. To check out Toure, his podcast and books, go to toure.com. T-O-U-R-E.com. And for more information about Ashanti Branch and Everforward, please check out everforwardclub.org. And of course feel free to email me directly at any time with any questions or comments at jeffk at onecommune.com. I make my best effort to reply to every email. And that's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.